From the Los Angeles Civil Rights Department and the Human Relations Commission, welcome to Forward Together. I'm Lisa Ling. People think that, you know, the L.A. uprisings came out of nowhere, but there was a lot of tension brewing in L.A. And a lot of it was the cultural difference. You know what I mean? The way, being a black and Korean person, the way Korean people roll and the way black people roll is very different. That was Haewon Asfa, whose mother is Korean-American and father is African-American. She was only two years old when the 1992 L.A. civil unrest began. She's a founding member of Black Lives Matter LA and a vocal advocate for social justice for both the Black and Korean communities in Los Angeles. Haewon spoke with Konji Lee, a Korean-American therapist and community organizer who describes themselves as a Korean queer femme child of immigrants. They were also a young child living in Koreatown in 1992. They work in Los Angeles addressing intergenerational trauma and healing in the Korean community. Haewon Asfa and Konji Lee have been friends since 2011, when they met as organizers at the Labor Community Strategy Center in Koreatown. They've served as advocates for the Korean and Black communities in Los Angeles most of their adult lives. And together, they formed a collective called Subok to provide a safe space for people to discuss issues of racial identity in LA. Today, they share stories about growing up in the aftermath of the 1992 unrest, how they see Los Angeles grappling with racial injustice today, and how they're fostering healing, hope, and solidarity for the next generation together. So my mom was a reporter for the Korean Times, and a lot of her reporting was happening um, across Los Angeles, but specifically K-Town. And before the Rodney King incident was covering a lot of just the, the black and Korean violence happening. Like people think that, you know, the LA uprisings came out of nowhere, but there was a lot of tension brewing in LA. Mm. And a lot of it was the cultural difference. You know what I mean? The way, being a black and Korean person, the way Korean people roll and the way black people roll is very different. You put that in a mixing pot in a shared community and you're going to have, you're going to have tension and in the midst of what happened, you're going to have violence, right? My little sister, Rahel, was in my mom's womb when she was covering this. So I just, I really, um, I, I am also a deeply spiritual person. And that stuff gets passed down. I, I feel like my mom changed after what she witnessed. I feel like um, also L.A. changed. I mean, a lot of people got pushed out. A lot of businesses were burned down. And people had to rebuild. And they weren't rebuilding from a place of healing and repair, and I feel like that's why you can still feel it spiritually, energetically in the streets, what happened. Yeah, it changed. It changed. I don't think LA was the same. Like, I was only, what, five when that happened. And so, you know that thing where you're like, I'm not sure how much of it is this, is my memory and how much of it was the storytelling that mm -hmm. I've created a memory. But I have a big memory <laughs> of knowing that my dad was not, they worked in the swap meets. Um, and... It was one of the swap meets impacted by the uprisings. And I think as a mental health person, I understand how trauma works. Hypervigilant. You're hypervigilant to danger. You make generalizations of danger. And so you put that on top of race, like recipe for disaster and the way the media was just scapegoating black folks and like diverting attention away from the Rodney King situation. 
and then putting Latasha Harlins on the news on over and over and over again repeat, you know, just it's it's just awful, right? And so I think for for me, I see this legacy of just this um, of number one, like I see like folks feeling that trauma in their bodies, looking for a scapegoat, the media lighting a fire under a lot of that anti-black sentiment to be like, it's not us, it's not about police violence, it's about black folks being violent. Um, so let's redirect the attention. Because when we're not bridging across difference, when we're not piercing the binary and we're constantly othering people, what does that do? It just, it just, it, it builds up fear. And then what happens when you're afraid and then you're on top of that dealing with so much trauma? <laughs> Like, it's not going to be pretty, you know what I mean? And a lot of the narratives very intentionally in the news, especially in the 90s, was look at these East Asian model minorities, and then the next image you see is of the Black welfare queen, for example. You know what I'm saying? And so whiteness didn't need to do much because then that pit Asian and Black communities together. And so I think a lot of the construction of the model minority myth, which we've seen since back in the day, because I think when like the U.S. was bringing in railroad workers from China, ironically, I think back then it was like the Irish and, you know, the like the bad white immigrants that started to be seen as the more positive communities in comparison to the evil, dirty, like sly Chinese workers, you know, and then and then we see that shifting and and the same narrative is happening over and over again in, in a different form. And I think we saw that really intensely in the 90s. And I think we're also all living in the aftermath of, of 1992 and there's a lot of healing and repair that needs to happen. And I think we were seeing this again um, after the passing of George Floyd in 2020, where the streets were almost feeling that same tension of anticipating another uprising. And so part of that was another a racial war or a rebellion will happen unless um, we remember what happened and why, mm. right? So I think that was a key piece to understanding our lives within the context of Los Angeles. I think a challenging thing about organizing in APIDA, you know, API, Desi American Communities, is that oftentimes it's very like, oh, poor us. And it's just like thinking about Asians in a vacuum and often East Asians. And I think with Subak, we did a lot of political education around like, okay, how do we go beyond identity politics of like, I am Korean and this is my like individual experience, which is important, but how do we use that as a pathway to also talk about history? So like the legacy of starting with Japanese occupation all the way to U.S. like military, like to the, to the war, to then U.S. installed military dictatorships and that all that context that brought our ancestors eventually to the U.S. that then brought us to us here today and the particular diaspora we live in and to make sense of like, why are my parents like this? <laughs> why are my grandparents like this? Why am I like this? Why, are, why, why is my community like this? And to be like, oh, there's a whole, there's things that happened that brought us here. It's not random and it's not just that we suck. <laughs> you know, there's this whole legacy of war and decades and decades and decades of constantly be occupied by outside forces that have brought us to this place that we are today. And then being here today to think about us as Koreans in the context of living in community with a bunch of Latinx and black folks, we cannot think of a, ourselves in a vacuum from that because this place doesn't look at us in a vacuum like that. We are seen as 
like as APIDA folks, we are seen in relationship to this racial hierarchy that's been established here. And so there's a lot of workshops and conversations around that as a concept, but also that as our experiences, because we all have lived that. We have all lived that in some way if we've lived in L.A. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt really inspired by the young organizers that are emerging when 2020 when the up, the 2020 uprising started, there was a group called K-Town for Black Lives and mostly young. I mean, yeah, it was like young, queer um, f- women, femme folks that were organizing these protests on Wilshire in like the heart of K-Town. And they were bringing together so many people across like, multi-generational, multilingual, multiracial and standing for black lives. Mm-hmm. And this was organized by Korean folks. And Kunji and I were able to to work with them to kind of share our story around Subak, to share some like what we built and, and some lessons we learned as they build this like emerging, like decentralized movement, really, and taking up space and chanting and, and people sharing their stories. And it was so beautiful to see. And I feel like those are the, the kind of things that I I, you know, I really lean so I really use hope to guide me. And I really think it's a, a, a as Mariam Kaba says, it's a real discipline to flex that hope muscle. But I think we're so saturated by the mainstream of these stories of division and violence. And I just really try to focus on what I'm seeing that is bringing healing really healing, bridging across difference, trying to figure out the things that happen and how do we learn from them? How do we not repeat history? So I think that's important to name too. I do think we have a long, long way to go. And we have, um, we're, a, we're at a moment in our culture where we have a lot of tools right now. It's really just a matter of, are we ready to embody them? I think especially with our social media culture, um, I know that when we started organizing, people were not talking about healing justice and trauma the way they are now. People were not talking about protecting your mental health. They were not talking about burnout in those ways. Um, and so that's those are some of the things that give me hope. And I do think we've come a long way in that sense. I see my mental health work as part of my community organizing work. I feel like we've really commodified this notion of self-care to be like healing is getting a massage, you know, and taking a hot bath, which is amazing. I love both of those things. (laughs) I'm all for it. But I think it's so important to invest in our own healing um, because, like I said earlier, if we're healed, if we're I mean, not that there's an end goal, but if we're in our healing journey, it's ongoing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Never ends. Never ends. Um, then we just have so much more capacity to to take care of other folks. Um, so much of the binary thinking is a product of trauma. So much of the racial tensions is a product of trauma and us looking for someone or something. You know, it's, it's a lot less scary if we can put a face to something. If it's something that we don't know and it's abstract and then we feel helpless and out of control, that's a lot scarier versus if we can be like, oh, no, it's it's these people who's causing this, it at least helps people feel a sense of control, right? But then that becomes very misguided, misguided anger, misguided pain. Right. Like if you're filtered, if you see the world through your perception and your perception is one of trauma, you've experienced war, you've experienced poverty, houselessness, joblessness, then you're going to filter through the world through all of those things, right? Scarcity, fear, all, all of that. So if we're seeing violence and racism and all these things, how is it playing out in your family? How is it playing out in your organizations? And we're in a cultural moment right now where a lot of formations, a lot of collectives, organization movements are struggling. They're struggling around this piece of conflict. 
And a lot of it is because look at even if you think of 2020 to now, 1992 to now, it has been non nonstop a trauma response. We, and right now, after a pandemic, George Floyd uprisings, policing, all this stuff, we are in a, a, a collective mental health trauma cycle right now. But we're not talking about it. We're supposed to go back to work like everything's normal. We're supposed to, but there's so much that we can examine. And I think it really is the piece of, you know, we can fight and talk about all the big stuff happening around us all day, but what do we have control over? I feel like it's really important to think about. In addition to the culture aspect, there's also a very intentional way that race has been constructed in the United States. And I think Claire Jean Kim puts a lot of those dynamics very aptly into great academic lingo to explain how that's happened. You know, this dynamic that I feel like people doing grassroots organizing has been aware of for a very long time. Um, but if you think about the concepts of racial triangulation and then the her newer article around that's called like, are Asians the new black people or something like that? Mm -hmm. She talks about number one, how has the government, how is, you know, the different institutions in the United States created this triangulation of there is the binary of white people and there's the binary of black people and we're going to use the construction of Asian to continue to criminalize and construct this notion of, of blackness and anti-blackness, right? And on top of that, in this new article, she talks a lot about not only are Asians put into that like triangulation dynamic, but now Asians, if like Asian folks are in ways reenacting through very overt acts and sentiments of anti-blackness, you know what I'm saying? And so I feel like we have to think about that as the larger structures, you know, and um, like that, that is the system that we lived in. Um, and that was the messaging. That is the stuff that's just been constantly fed to folks. But I think, where are we now today? I feel like we still got a long way to go. But I just want to say that the folks are, are struggling and it feels like there's hope is, you know, it's feeling hard to grasp. Um, everyone around you is going through it. Lean in and, 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 and let's just stretch our capacity to feel uncomfortable and to struggle and to ask questions and be curious versus that, you know, that reaction, just reacting all the time. Racism, all, all, t all forms of hatred are racism. Racism. It's a shapeshifter. You know what I mean? If you don't get to the root of it, if you don't remember history, if you don't uh, reclaim your stories, because 92, a lot of our stories were told for us. And I think it wasn't until um, the last couple of years where I was I was hearing um, other stories that I didn't know. Um, folks that built community, folks that were protecting their the, the, the small businesses, literally creating brocades with their bodies to prevent folks from taking down their local store. But I just, I didn't hear a lot of those stories. And so I think it, it's just so intentional to keep us separated from each other. Again, the othering. And, you know, another thing Adrienne Marie Brown says, who's a emergent strategist, is that what you pay attention to grows. What are we reflecting on if what we pay attention to grows? What stories are we uplifting? What, I don't know, what new possibilities, what new groups like Subak, like K-Town for Black Lives, like these are young people that took pain and learned those lessons to create something new. And so I just want to, um, as we reflect on the 30th anniversary, I encourage us to continue doing that. That's it for this episode of Forward Together. Thanks again to our guests, Haywan Asfa and Konji Lee. 
If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Forward Together is presented by the LA Civil and Human Rights and Equity Department and the Human Relations Commission. The executive producer is Stacy Twilley. The Forward Together team is Courtney Morgan Green, Angelica Montero, Rosa Russell, and Brooke Warshafter. Special thanks to Capri Maddox, Francisco Ortega, Mark Pompanin, and Tajwar Khan. This episode was produced by Daniel Hamm and the USC Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. Our supervising producer was Celine Mendiola. We also had help from producers L. Davidson and Hannah Kong. Our theme music was composed by Maximus Chan, USC Thornton School of Music. Special thanks to Willow Bay, Maya Ganung, Sebastian Grubaugh, and Willa Seidenberg. I'm your host, Lisa Ling. For more information, visit civilandhumanrights.lacity.org.